Welcome, everybody, to episode 32 of The Hopeful Majority. Today is Martin Luther King Day. And last year, I actually had a fantastic conversation with the author of Martin Luther King's newest biography called King A Life. It actually made President Barack Obama's summer reading list, and it's been charting on a lot of different places. And I had this awesome conversation with, with the author, Jonathan. And I thought that today, given that it's Martin Luther King Day, it would be amazing to rerun that conversation. We've had some amazing new people join the whole majority. I don't think everybody's heard that conversation. And importantly, I think that this conversation is super enlightening in terms of how we think about our politics today. Before I quickly get into it, every Monday, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you are, we drop the content of the hopeful majority every Monday. And importantly, we're building this space because we want to fight outrage, build nuance. We need to have open and productive conversations. And so I'd had on Jonathan to talk about this book and to talk about Dr. King's legacy because I think it informs a lot of the work that we're doing today. Whether you're a liberal or a conservative, whether you're blue, green, red, doesn't matter, purple, I don't care. The fact is that we as Americans, and importantly, anybody that is thinking about democracy. I think we can learn a lot. And I thought that this conversation is particularly useful for three reasons. And usually, I actually do an introduction, a monologue, and then we get into the conversation. I'm just going to combine the introduction monologue today because I think that this conversation is fascinating. But three reasons why I think it's particularly important as we head into 2024. The first is that Dr. King resembled a fascinating compromise between civil disobedience and activism, and what I think is a bridge-building temperament. Here's what I mean by that. Today, if you asked and saw activists on the far left, on the far right, whatever, you name it, there seems to be a lot of ideological zealotry, and there seems to be a ton of zero-sum, I-will-win-at-all-costs action, without there actually being much of an understanding that we have to create coalitions to bring everybody together. Because if you want to achieve the change that you're thinking about, You've got to lay the long-term grassroots success and platform for that change. You need to bring everybody along. We need to be open-minded, hear why people might disagree with our beliefs, so that we might be better advocates for our beliefs. And Dr. King really embodied that. And I think on this day, that is something worth celebrating and thinking about. And this conversation with Jonathan really gets to that core. The second reason is that I think when I had this conversation last summer, um, we asked actually what Martin Luther King's perspective would be on President Biden today, on Bernie Sanders, on Donald Trump even. We thought about the fact that a lot of people use Dr. King's legacy in their favor. You know, it's just like most historical figures, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, you name it. These are seminal figures in American history. And so people campaigning today will say, I'm like that person, vote for me. I'm like that guy, vote for me. They'd, it's almost like they're ripping off the brands of these people so they can advance their careers and agendas. And uh, I asked the biographer of King of Life, Jonathan, well, what do you think King would say about these different candidates? And we get into that, and I think you'd be fascinated to hear what King's take take would might be on Donald Trump and on, on Biden. And finally, the third reason, I think this is one of the most important ones, is that this book really paints King as a person. And what I mean by person is people, us, are inherently flawed and also have a lot of hope and honesty, and potential, and light to give to the world. And this book shows King in all of his dimensions. Dr. King was somebody that had a lot of challenges and flaws in his personal life that he had to deal with. And 
I think the reason why that's important to share is because today when there seems to be a lot of hopelessness and a lot of despair, we hold perfection as the standard that our public officials, our leaders, we as people, if we fail a little bit, that we're completely unfit. And in fact, humanity, we got to take it in all its glory. And Dr. King, while someone that did a lot for this country, had those flaws. And I think that's important for people to see because I think it gives all of us a sense of hope and optimism that we, even though we might be flawed, have capacity to contribute. And that's one of the fundamental themes of this podcast is that each of us has the capacity to contribute. The moment we drink the poison of apathy and give in to the fact that we're flawed and there's no chance that we can change anything that we see, that the problems are too big, that it's too substantial, remember that the greatest change by some of the greatest people was a product of both their imperfections and their perfections. And I hope that this conversation leaves you with a sense of agency and understanding that even these leaders that we hold up to the highest standards and pedestals had their flaws. We humanize people that seem absolutely inhuman, superhuman. And I think with Dr. King and his amazing legacy, there's a lot to learn from that. So with that, I'm really excited to see the rest of this conversation through with Jonathan. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I'll see you on the other side. There's no other way to start this than actually a question that that you ask in the book and that Dr. King asks. And I just want to, this is the only time I've ever read from an actual book on an episode, but I have to do this. Um, page 144. King would have to be bold enough to encourage the people to suffer for their freedom, moderate enough to keep their fervor under control, and optimistic enough to make everyone believe they could succeed. He needed to embolden them without embittering. Could the militant and the moderate be combined in a single speech, he wondered. It was a question he would ask in various forms for the rest of his life. How do you think he would respond to that question? Could the militant and the moderate be combined in one cause? I think clearly he would respond, yes, it could, because that's what he dedicated his whole life to. And the moment you're referring to is his first big speech at the very onset of the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, December 5th, 1955 when he had 20 minutes to prepare for what he called the biggest speech of his life. And with 20 minutes to prepare, he had to fall back on his gut, on his instincts, on the Bible and the Constitution. And the Bible and the Constitution are great examples of the moderate and the militant, right? I mean, the Bible's right. a very militant uh, document. Um, the Constitution could be perceived that way too, right? It was a declaration of independence. Um, quite literally. So the moderate and, and, and the radical are coming together and King, that's, that's King's whole voice, I would argue. What is, what does he mean by the moderate? Because it seems like today, everybody in some way tries to take Dr. King's legacy and apply it to their political project. Um, in his words and his thought process, what do you think he meant by the moderate? And what do you think he meant by the militant? Well, moderate means that, you know, you're talking about a group of people, uh, black Americans, 1955 at that point, who have been oppressed, who have been enslaved, who have been mistreated, who have been denied their rights, denied their share of American citizenship. And they are coming together to protest, but they are not trying to overthrow their oppressors. They're not trying to even, um, they're not there to criticize their oppressors. They're to, they're to join the society that is oppressing them. That's moderate, right? Um, that's saying, 
we believe in America. We believe in democracy. We, we are patriots. Just let us share and let us help you make this a better country. So I think that's moderate. It's almost the distinction between reform versus overthrow, which you get at later on the which you get at later in the book. Do you think it's also moderate from a standpoint? And that almost screams to me not ideologically moderate, but it, it screams to me sort of temperamentally moderate, um, yes. moderate in a way of thinking as opposed to what they're thinking. Is that accurate? Yeah, and, and some of it is rooted in Christianity, loving your neighbor, loving your even your enemy. Um, but it's also worth noting that they're they're objectives at that point were, were fairly um, modest. They were not even asking for the buses. First of all, it was focused only on, on busing in Montgomery, and they were not even asking for integration of those buses. They were simply asking for more respect. They said, you know, don't make us get on the front of the bus, get off and exit through the back and enter again through the back door. Uh, hire a few black drivers. Let us sit toward the front if those seats are empty. They were not asking for formal integration. They were just asking for a compromise. So they were approaching this very modestly in the beginning. And only when they were not treated civilly, when the, when the white leaders of Montgomery refused to even compromise, did their demands grow more radical. What's interesting is part of the reason why we built by the way, I say we, it's really just me sitting in a mop closet, uh, having a conversation with <laughs> me too. fascinating folks. I'm in the laundry oh, good, room. Good, good, <laughs> good. Well, on YouTube, they'll see. Um, you know, uh, the idea behind the hopeful majority was that I think there's a new divide in our politics. And I don't think it has to do with left, right. I think it has to do with how we think. I think it has to do with theories of change. I think there's competing visions for how you build the world that you want to build. And it seems like that was one of the biggest battles throughout the civil rights movement, especially between Dr. King and Malcolm X. Um, but before we go there, you talked about their changes and their requests being relatively modest. What do you think motivated and drove Dr. King to spend so many years of his life, I mean, all of his life, basically, um, on the side of sort of an optimistic vision of change why didn't he just like what what do you think in his character enabled him to not just throw up his hands and just go crazy because as you said the demands were modest and it took so much out of him i mean the entire book is riddled with a deep analysis of his personal mental struggles why do you think he didn't just throw up his hands and operate on a more pessimistic or cynical worldview i think fundamentally the bible has a lot to do with it if you believe in the Bible, and King clearly does, his father is a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, he becomes a preacher, um, and you believe what the Bible says, it doesn't square with the way black people are being treated in America. So one of them must be wrong. Hmm. And if you believe that's the case, then clearly you see it as, and if the Bible commands us to work toward creating a more just universe, uh, commands us to try to love our neighbors, then your job is to try to square those two things and fix the one that, that's wrong, that doesn't agree with the other. And I think that's King's fundamental approach. Um, why didn't he get angry? Why didn't he ever turn to violence? Why didn't he, you know, throw up his hands or take a more, even more profoundly radical approach like, you know, a Malcolm X or Stokely Carmichael? I think some of that comes from his upbringing too and his personality. Um, everybody I talked to who knew King said that he was not bruised in the same way by racism that so many of them were. He seemed to have emerged from his childhood without some of that that hate 
that 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 anger that boiled in so many young people at that time. Mm. You know, when you think about his sort of ability to marshal the Bible to the moment, right, and marry the stories of the the Israelites and marry the story of Moses and marry the story of Jesus and talk about this notion that we have to push forward because the the Bible manifests this. Um, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm just curious. I mean, today there's a there's a rapid decline of religiosity in the United States. Um, it's one of the chief complaints of many conservative, I would say, intellectuals, but also a lot of liberal intellectuals. I think a lot of people are concerned about the decline of religiosity. And there also seems to be an uptick in polarization, an uptick in cynicism, an uptick in pessimism. Do you think that Dr. King would think that those two things are at all correlated, given that the Bible had such a huge impact on his sort of quote-unquote moderate temperament? Well, there's no question about it. Uh, I don't know that the civil rights movement or, or King could have succeeded without the church. And, and the church not only forms a, a, a common ground where people from throughout the community come together and get along and have something in common, regardless mm -hmm. of their political beliefs, but the church also becomes this great system for organization. People are, are gathering together already every Sunday, and it's not hard to get them to gather together again a couple more times a week to focus on something like a boycott. So um, that, not to mention that they're actually you know, reading the Bible and and taking lessons from it and trying to decide, you know, what how to live their lives accordingly. And one of the great things about the, the black social gospel in particular is that it's mm -hmm. always been focused on societal change, not just on personal change, not just on saving your soul, but saving your community and, and healing the wounds of society. So uh, that's something that really, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the faith, the, the widespread faith, the fact that, you know, half of all Americans were in church on any given Sunday uh, back in those days. That makes a huge difference. Well, for anybody listening, I, I really want to jump to the question of how would how would Dr. King think about and align with the modern progressive movement and the modern conservative movement? But out of respect for John's work, I want to go on a general flow, but stay tuned because that is a question I will be asking. I have to ask you this breaking away from the book, because believe it or not, I am actually interested in you as a person and, 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 and that is, as you were writing this, as you were interviewing these folks, as you were you were talking to giants and and trying to relay a history, and as a white American, you know, did you feel a certain sense of pressure? Did you feel how did you just go through this process of of really detailing a life, not the life, but a life of a of a fascinating human? I felt an enormous sense of responsibility. Um, pressure is one way to describe it. Um, but responsibility and anxiety and, and um, feeling like I just had to work hard to live up to that responsibility and uh, humbly recognizing that I, that I needed to learn from the people who knew more than I did and asking certainly the people who knew King to, to help me and to sit for interviews and to coach me. And some folks like, you know, Reverend James Lawson, you know, literally became my teacher where I would, I made an appointment to call him every Monday night for, you know, several months and to ask him to basically, you know, he didn't lecture me, but that's how I felt like right. I just wanted to listen to him. So that was really important. And then doing the same kind of thing with black scholars, asking them to, to coach me so that I would, you know, have the advantage, the benefit of their wisdom. What was the hardest part about writing this? I'm just curious. Yeah. What what was what made it so uh, both an awesome task and and a deeply responsible one? Well, I think the hardest part was that there's a massive amount of material. 
it's a very complicated life story that it involves, you know, race, religion, politics, um, so much that I had to learn and so much to assimilate all in the course of, you know, one story. And, you know, I could have written, you know, 10 mm. books on the subject and not exhausted everything that needed to be said. So that was one challenge. Um, but then also just, um, I think on a, on a more practical sense, um, you know, getting to those folks who knew King, who were, who were up there in years and having, and, 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 getting interviews with them and, and asking them the right questions and not um, asking them the same questions they had been asked a million times over and asking them to, you know, to really think um, in a different way about what King meant to them and, and, and to think about it. You know, I was trying to write a more intimate book and not just a, you know, a political book that covered, here's what he did. Um, here's what he said. I wanted to know how he felt. I wanted to know, you know, what inspired him. Uh, I wanted to know what, what depressed him. And, um, those are those are challenging conversations sometimes. Well, John, in a moment, I'm going to I'm going to get back to sort of Dr. King's theory of political action, how he created difference. I want to specifically get to the the difference between him and SNCC, you know, the SNCC and, and him and him and Malcolm X. But before that, I just have to ask you one other question on this, which is that I was fascinated by the title. And immediately when I saw the title, I had a certain perception of this book, which was it said King a life. And, and I, I, again, my English teachers are going to be so proud of me because I got like a C minus in, in American literature and, and barely made it through college and high school. But A, I was so caught up by the word A because that makes him seem both extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. As a young person, what I deeply appreciated about this book, the angle that I was taking was it detailed Dr. King's flaws and it detailed his, his, his awesome sort of nature. Is that purposeful? Was that a purposeful intent to really paint a holistic picture of Dr. King as opposed to a one-dimensional one? Yeah, my number one goal with this book was to write a more intimate portrait and to show that it was just a life, that he was like us, that he was human, that he had flaws, that he suffered, that he suffered anxiety, that he attempted suicide twice um, as a teenager, that he chewed his fingernails. Um, so yes, it's, it's a life. Um, he was human. And that um, we tend to, by you know, turning him into a saint, or by turning him into a national holiday, we we run the risk of of making him seem off limits. That you know we can never aspire to do anything like he did because he's you know Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the national holiday. Um, but I wanted to remind folks that he was a man and that he um, you know he was human. And and I would also just add to your you know literary analysis. A life also means that this is one telling of his life. It's, you know, my best shot at telling his story, but someone else will come along and do it again. And there'll be another life of King and in, an, in the hands of another writer, it, you know, his, the picture will emerge differently. And was the motivation around painting Dr. King again as somebody that is not beyond reproach was part of that motivation also that you want leaders today to be able to feel like they can aspire to a theory of change that is hopeful, that is optimistic, was part of it is an almost a calling to folks that you too can create the change that somebody like Dr. King tried to aspire for. Absolutely. And, and that's a big point that I'm hoping to make. And it's not just leaders, it's all of us. Um, Anybody. Because that's what, that's what uh, we're put on this earth to do. You know, it's not about us. It's not about, you know, who can make the most money. It's about how we can help each other and how we can make a better society. And that's, you know, King was, was a great, living example of that. And he laid it on the line and he was telling us in sermons, you know, every week, sometimes five or six a week, um, you know, how much hope he had for all of us that we could do better. 
And uh, we need to hear those words again, because as you said, you know, we're not going to, 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 to religious services as much as we used to. Um, we have to engage with that kind of an idea, that kind of you know, spirituality and, and optimism. I have to say, and I know, again, that you don't know my story as much as I know yours, uh, but, you know, there's there's portions of this book where I'm just starring and writing relatable. And I don't mean relatable in the sense that, like, I, I'm Dr. King. I mean, literally just relatable in the sense of I, I found myself thrust into something that I never asked for. I was a pre-med student. And uh, part of the reason for the hopeful majority is that I think there's an exhaustive majority of people out there that have just disengaged from the process, but they are looking and 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 we we need to inspire them to act. And there's moments where I feel genuinely anxious. And part of the reason I picked up this book was I was like, did Dr. King ever feel anxious? You know, what, what was his, uh, you know, depressed sometimes, challenged. And so I just want to say that I think that you, you accomplished that goal, at least for me. And I'm deeply grateful Thanks. to you for that. It was almost a mental health uh, exercise in some ways. Well, I appreciate that. So I appreciate and, and you for that. Uh, one of the great things about biography is that if you're if you do it right and if you read it right, you know, it exists on multiple planes. It almost, you know, like a time traveler. You're reading about King in the 1940s or 30s when he's a child. Uh, you're reading about it almost 100 years later in 2023, and you're it resonates differently, right? His his life means something different when seen through our modern lens. And then it reflects in a different way when it's seen through your own prism, what you've experienced. Um, and then when you read it again 20 years from now, I hope when you're older and wiser, you'll you'll read it differently. You'll see different things in it. So um, that's why I think biography has a lot of power because it's, it's basically an exercise in empathy it's uh, it's not only an exercise in empathy, but if you want to learn about life, you have to read about life. And do you just say when I get wiser? Are you telling me that I've I've not already capped all my knowledge potential? Well, There's more to learn out peaked. there. It, There's, it really seems no, like I you know, couldn't it, go it, any it's only you, it's only downhill from here. Um, so I I want to get back to the content. So, uh, theory of change, theory of action. Uh, one of the biggest critiques we get today when we talk about what might be a moderate temperament and King used to get this critique all the time is you're too slow or that how do you even respond to change or uh, that in fact, there's this notion of all sides somewhere or why are we including, you know, the quote unquote oppressor in our fight to build a better world, right? All of those sort of different critiques. How do you think Dr. King responded to that critique, especially when he was challenged by younger activists that were seemingly much more quote unquote militant or radical? Or how do you think he responded to that when it came to Malcolm X and his rift with him on, on at least just a practical political level? One of the things I love about King is that he was affected by this. It bothered him when people said, you're moving too slow, or when other people said, you're moving too fast, right? A lot of... Uh, progressives, uh, white liberals, um, a lot of clergymen said, you know, slow down, you know, you're just going to piss people off. You're asking for too much too soon. At the same time, others in the in the cause, um, others, you know, uh, who are more radical or more progressive or just younger and um, less patient are saying, you know, what are you waiting for? You know, put the pedal to the metal. Let's just go full bore. And so King was getting attacked from both sides. Um, but the, the beautiful thing about King is that he was always willing to listen to those who were criticizing him. He had a little bit more patience, I would say, for the people who were urging him to go faster. The people who were urging him to go slower really pissed him off, um, especially religious leaders. When they said, you know, be patient, you know, it takes time, um, you know, let's maintain good relations. 
nothing infuriated him more than that. that's what inspired the letter from Birmingham jail. You know, these these white ministers told him to 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 to, to take it slow, to dial it back, and and he was he was furious. But when it came to people like Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael pushing him to go harder, he loved talking to those guys. He loved debating with them, and he remained open minded. And I think you can see the influences of Malcolm and Stokely working its way into King's words and into his work. Do you think that as he was attacked, um, and attacked is a harsh word, critiqued from not only both sides, but all sides. I mean, that that doesn't even include the people that just were detractors, you know, folks like J. Edgar Hoover, folks that were just disaffected by his calls for change. It, it almost seems to challenge this notion of perfection, that there is no perfect way to create change. It, it seems like when I talk to a lot of people my age, um, and this is me actually critiquing folks that are my age, I think in some ways, which is that I often get this thought that it's like, you have to be perfect. And it seems like this book is a fundamental challenge to that notion of perfection, that just do your best. Is that is that accurate? Am I, am I off base on that? No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's harder today because there's so much more public scrutiny and criticism. And if you say one thing wrong or you have one failure, you know, you're you run the risk of being, you know, canceled or at least attacked on on social media. And then it's, you know, it's hard to it's hard to rebound from that sometimes. But King was really willing to take risks and really willing to fail. If you think about it, you know, after the Montgomery bus boycott, um, activists from all over the country say, you know, we need to duplicate this. We need to make it happen over and over again. We need King to become a national civil rights leader. And he begins trying to duplicate it and he fails several times. You know, he, he tries to bring his movements to St. Augustine, Florida, to Albany, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And by most accounts, those, those were failures. And he goes in again to Birmingham without any real plan. He doesn't know how he's going to, how he's going to fix it. What's he going to do differently this time? He just is willing to keep trying and hoping something will, something will work out. And what he learns is that his, one of his great abilities, his great powers, his great strengths is his ability to allow chaos to occur, to throw himself into a situation where he doesn't know what's going to happen, create conflict, hope it generates good news coverage, hope it lights a fire under president to do something on the larger scale. But that is, that is not, you know, there's no formula there. You can't say, okay, well that worked. Let's just, let's just drop another bomb. Let's just like parachute into another town and hope the police dog sick us and that the, the media responds to that. It's, you know, it's, he was absolutely willing to fail in order to try to, um, to, to help the cause. And he did, he failed many times. Yeah, and, and you mentioned news coverage. There is an essential component of things that elevated his his moments in, for example, Birmingham, Montgomery, uh, Selma. Can you speak a little bit to the power of media and sort of the power of, of the radio and television and what it had to do with his moments where it did work, where that chaos did point itself in a positive direction? What do you think was was the correlation or the use of media in in the civil rights movement? King comes along at the perfect time and he's the perfect guy because, you know, television uh, is, is exploding. Um, home, homes, you know, the vast majority of American homes are getting televisions for the first time. And King is is not just um, a brilliant, brave leader, but he happens to be really photogenic, intelligent, and incredibly eloquent. And the cameras love him. And they recognize that there's this great story because it's, you know, 
David versus Goliath. It's these, and it's, right. it's these nonviolent protesters are taking on the police, the water cannons, the, the German shepherds. I mean, it's just unbelievable drama that plays really well on television. And King could not have seen that in advance, but he recognized it really quickly. And when reporters came to town, he was always making sure that he knew that the white Northern reporters were going to be on his side and that all he had to do was give them the material they needed to tell their stories. And the, 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 the white sheriffs in places like Birmingham, the white police officers, um, the, the, they, didn't, they didn't see what they were up against. They didn't understand the way King did, uh, how important the media was in this game. How do you think he would perform in today's media environment? Who knows? Uh, you know, would he would he be good on Twitter? Would he be good on Instagram? You know, would he have would he be able to stick <laughs> to his King message? Tweeting. Yeah, he would be. He would. He'd have to, right? Um, but would he be good at it? Uh, you know, one of the problems with and, King is that he. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, not even just good at it, but uh, it seems like at that time. I mean, there's, there's, st I mean, while media is bursting and growing and the mediums are changing, there still seems to be some relative consolidation, right? In terms of like, there are three or four things that people are getting. So King's message, would, do you think he would be caught up in the echo? Do you think his message would only exist in certain platforms while millions of other people never even hear from him, only hear opinions of like, that's what I'm really getting at is, do you think he would elevate beyond sort of the echo chambers of today's media, which seems so disparate? Does anybody? Um, that's the problem. You know, the, the way social media, the way media in general is designed today, we are allowed to stay in our silos and not listen to voices uh, beyond the ones that we are most comfortable hearing. So does anybody transcend that today? I don't know. Would King be, be any different? I just don't know. I thought the same thing um, when I was working on my book about Muhammad Ali. Would anybody be open-minded enough to listen to a you know, a radical black Muslim man talking about um, refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Would any, you know, middle of the road people be, be receptive to that in today's climate? I just don't know. I have to ask you, Dr. King versus Barack Obama. Who's more eloquent? <laughs> oh, I, I'm not going to uh, piss off Barack Obama after he put me on his summer reading list. But um, <laughs> I guess that, that answers the question, though. <laughs> um, okay, I want to shift a little bit to questions about the moment, because I know one of the most pressing, and and I bet part of the reason why so many folks are picking up this book is because people want to know, what would Dr. King think about the moment? You know, we, we I mean, everybody I hear, all the political leaders we've talked to, celebrities, et cetera, whatever. I mean, the amount of times Dr. King's name is invoked is is insane. Um, and and it's, it speaks to his power. So I want to ask you, what do you think Dr. King would say about the state of today's race relations? Uh, how do you think he would perceive and look at the state of, of American race today and how it is? It's always hard to try to put King's, uh, you know, apply King's vision to what's going on in the world today. But very often we can just look back at what he actually did say. And in the last years of his life, he was deeply frustrated that we were intentionally segregating ourselves um, especially in the north, where you know white people were moving out of the cities, uh, that schools were 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 segregating themselves, you know, voluntarily uh, by in part because of economic patterns, and and we're still there today. You know, um, he came to Chicago in 1966 and tried to, you know, address some of our our issues with housing and school segregation, and we're just as bad, if not worse, today than we were in 1966. So you know, King was deeply frustrated and, and felt like. 
nothing was going to change until we made fundamental economic changes to our system, that it was not enough anymore just to pass um, legislation on voting rights or on um, discrimination, that it had to be you know, a, a really deeply rooted uh, structural economic change. And I think that's uh, what he'd be addressing today too, probably. That's so fascinating because one of the things that I learned from your book was that the March on Washington was called the March on Washington on Jobs and Freedom, if I get the, if yep, I get the full right. title correct. Um, when you talk about the structural economic changes that he started really pushing for and talking about, today there's a fundamental debate in society between race and class. You know, what is more important? What is a more important marker and category to address both the left and the right, arguably? conservative populism and liberal populism is very focused on this. Do you think that he would make the argument today that a focus on class and structural economic change is not necessarily more important, but more necessary and effective than a singular focus on issues like voting rights? Yeah, once again, I don't need to speculate because we can look at what he was doing um, in the month before he was assassinated. He was organizing the Poor People's Campaign, which was basically Occupy Washington, D.C. And he was trying, he, he said he was shifting from civil rights to human rights and that he was going to bring together people of all different races, um, all different political beliefs, uh, labor work, labor union organizers, um, poor people, um, church people, anti-war activists, he was going to bring a new coalition of people to Washington and they were going to occupy a, a, a town, a little you know, village, uh, tents and, and shacks on, on public ground in Washington until the government agreed to things like guaranteed jobs, uh, guaranteed income, uh, health insurance, uh, just a much bigger social safety net, something that might have you know, sounded a lot more like a you know, um, European style um, socialist democracy. What do you think led to that sort of change, not necessarily in focus, but emphasis from civil rights to human rights? I think it was his feeling that, um, you know, a lot of his advisors were saying, just stick to voting rights in the South, that, that if you do that, we'll get our, we'll get better people elected to office. We can start to change the structure of the nation. We can, you know, really Im Im improve uh, the, the welfare of everybody, stick to voting rights. But King wasn't content to do that, uh, in part, again, because of his religious faith, but also because he generally was was moved by his experiences in the North and saw how um, the racism there was subtler and better camouflaged, but just as pernicious. And that really the only way to attack it was through uh, economic reform, that until you had better schools, better jobs, uh, better housing opportunities for 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 all low-income people, that the the the, the 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 societal divides were going to remain. So I think um, he was deeply influenced by his travels in the North and especially by his time in Chicago to think that um, legislation wasn't going to be enough anymore. Well, I gotta I gotta give you the the break before this next question, which is, of course, that one you you can't speculate on King. Nobody can. And two is that. As you said, this is a life, which means it's just your take and not the take on on Dr. King. But I mean, the amount of times people ask, "What would Dr. King say about President Biden today?" You know, how how do you think he would respond to 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 the president's political project? 
if we got into a little bit of the speculative territory without compromising the the integrity of your work, which I have to say is very strong, what would you say? I would say that he probably would have voted for Bernie Sanders. Um, I think he, Sanders, uh, again, like on the economic stuff, lines up pretty pretty well well with with a lot of what King was talking about. But I think you know a lot of the stuff Biden has been doing uh, on on uh, the economy, on infrastructure. I think um, King would probably be behind that. So King would have voted for Bernie. That's, that's breaking news. But yeah. <laughs> but I, but that's what you that's what you think. Now I got, I have to ask this. Let's just stay on it for a second because a hopeful majority would try to balance ideological convictions. I can already hear somebody saying, "Well, somebody like Bernie, he threat to America, threat to American democracy, threat to the founding." And yet, what's fascinating about your book is, I mean, King is a deep affection to the American Constitution. He has a deep allegiance to the founding fathers. He he talks while critiquing the founding, he talks about the strength and the spirit and the optimism that is inherent in America. How do you balance his sort of, how do you balance the critique that somebody's thinking right now listening to saying, well, you know, he voted for Bernie, well, my polarizing instinct immediately goes to, well, he must not like America at all. Like, how do you, how do you respond to that immediate gut, gut, gut reaction? I think he's capable and we are capable of, of appreciating two things at the same time that may be in conflict. He America and he hated systemic racism. He loved America and he hated economic inequality. And America has a lot of economic inequality and it has a lot of systemic racism. So that doesn't mean you throw out the country. It doesn't mean you throw out the constitution. It means you try to square these two things that are in conflict. I have to, I have to put a plug in for, I think it was episode five. Uh, and actually this, this came from your book. This was the, this was the first episode I was doing for the podcast when I picked up your book. So I, I was reading it and the the entire focus of the episode is what does it mean to actually love America? Because I, you know, I'm not in any relationships for the for the record, and and I have a very nascent understanding of love. But one thing I can say is it seems like love means you both admire and critique. You accept the flaws, I would imagine, while understanding what is what makes that person, what makes that thing, what makes that idea great. Why do you think we live in this moment in society where we just can't balance these two? Why can't we do both? And and it seems like everybody's on the left, the right, every. Everybody's like, you got to either critique the entire thing and throw the baby out with the bathwater, or this thing is the get best thing I've ever come across, and there's no need or even necessity for change. I I know we can. I know we can love people that drive us crazy and love uh, countries that have deep flaws. I know that because my wife has stuck with me um, <laughs> for more than 25 years. But um I just think that we're not trying to because it's easier to to criticize. It's so much easier just to just to you know attack everything and 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 make snide comments on Twitter about everything that bothers you and not try to think about the big picture and to think about that you know we we all you know the the, the people we're disagreeing with love this country too and we we love 90% of the same things but it's just in some ways it's more fun it's more emotionally satisfying just to Let's keep on the people and the things you disagree with. It's interesting because just the last episode, John, we I asked the question, which many people have already critiqued me for as being too naive, which you know I, I knew was coming, which is, is America really divided? And the reason for that question, while it sounds fundamentally obvious, is let's actually look into the data. And in a lot of studies that we've come across, I mean, starts with us, which is one of our partner organizations, did this extensive study. It showed nine out of 10 Americans on both the right and left agree on a lot of values. You know, there's there's a lot. The media covers 
crazy hyperpartisan politicians four times more than what we would call the problem solvers. And so the question to me naturally becomes, is it that we're actually really that divided or do we misunderstand how divided we are? Um, is it a perception or is it a reality? So anyway, it's just something I wrestle with. I don't know. Do, do you do you think about that at all? Yeah, I think about it a lot. And I think about the, the fact that um, the times we're living in have helped us accentuate the divisions. As you mentioned, the media you know, when I was young, everybody in town read the same newspaper and the newspaper had a divergence of opinions. And, um, you know, you can you, you can judge for yourself. And the newspaper um, was kind of a, a, you know, a safe place for everybody to weigh in. And I think churches were the same, you know, um, synagogues were the same, you know, mosques were the same. You came together and prayed and then you had lunch afterwards and you, you argued with your neighbors about politics, but you still were coming together and praying together. And uh, yeah, that's okay, you know, but it's it's become less uh, acceptable and there's less space for doing that today. And this is coming from somebody that just spent the last six years with some of the people closest to what my, what many might call uh, the most dominant and monumental civil rights icon of their time. That It seems like it's obvious to what you're saying, which is that bridging differences is not mutually inconsistent with social justice. And and importantly, also bridging differences is not mutually exclusive with a lot of conservative aims. It's just it's just about humanity, it seems. And it seems like Dr. King, King was about that after all. Just he's not a, he's just on team human. And yeah. and the next question you go ahead. I was gonna say and people like Andy Young would say, you know, I got to like Sheriff Laurie Pritchett. It, it, you know, I, I got to like, you know, some of these people who were we were battling with years went by and, and they became friends. Uh, and if those guys who were on the front lines getting tear gassed and getting thrown in jail could stay open-minded and, and, and build relationships with, with their enemies, then, you know, we ought to be able to do that too. I have to ask you the, the corollary to the, the Biden question, which is, I mean, frankly, if somebody's listening to this on, on the conservative side of the spectrum would also say that, I mean, it seems like, you know, right-wing populism is also talking about jobs and it's talking about economic pain and structural pain. I would imagine that Dr. King would try to stitch together a coalition of white working class and and African-American folks, of, of Indian Americans and Hispanics, that he would try to build a really wide coalition built around economic change, which seems to be what you're saying. Um, what do you think he would say about President Trump, perhaps, or just sort of the broader uh, conservative movement today? Wow, I really don't know if I. And you don't have. You don't. You don't. You. You're not. No, but you don't have to hold back because really the goal of this conversation is it's it's nuanced and I think the audience understands that. So this is not definitive, but I'm just curious. Like, what do you think he would if we were just sitting here in a barbershop just talking? Like, and I asked you, what what would Dr. King say about President Trump? Like, what what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. You know, most I'll just say most of the folks. I again, I'm a journalist. I like to try to stay. Avoid my own opinion. Stick, stick um, to the most facts. Of the, most of the folks who knew King well and who were working in his in his um, in his orbit and who maintained his values, you know, folks like Andy Young and James Lawson and Dick Gregory um, were not fans of Trump. They thought he was he was um, stoking hatred. They thought he was stoking division. Never mind the politics. I think they felt like he was trying to divide, and um, that he was. Um, Encouraging people to uh, to wallow in their in their prejudices, to um, to to tear down people they perceived as the other, and I think that uh, King would certainly uh, be you know strongly opposed to that uh, that approach to to, to leading. <laughs> 
Well, something I want to deeply appreciate about this conversation, John, is uh, there's a piece of of King's life and the message that you're talking about that everybody across the political spectrum can grab onto. You talked about loving America, talked about loving the founding. You also talked about critiquing America, talk about economic freedom. And at the same time, you talk about a focus on race. I mean, it seems like, shocker, the nuance around King is something where it can't be placed in a bucket, a label. You know, it seems like there's a, there's a bigger concept here, bigger idea. And that's exactly the goal of this podcast. I think everybody here today is, has come away with something where they say, I can see that. And I can imagine a conservative listening to this and sharing this episode with their liberal friends saying, see, he, he's willing to listen to the white working class. And I could imagine a, a liberal person sitting here and saying, sharing this with their conservative friends saying, see, he, he might critique the, the structural racism inherent in the country. Would you broadly agree with that analysis that everybody can see a piece of their ideology or their ideas or their thoughts in Dr. King's life? King was really um, broad-minded and and open-minded and willing to learn from other people. And I think, you know, he resisted the temptation. He was asked sometimes to run for president on an independent party ticket. Even that um, didn't work for him because he was he did not see himself as a political person. He saw himself as a moralist. And he saw himself as a preacher. He said over and over again, in my, in my heart of hearts, I'm a preacher. And that's all I ever wanted to be. And he was put into this position that resembled political leadership. But that's not how he saw it. He saw it as preaching to save the soul of the nation. And you know, one of my favorite moments in this book is this conversation that he has in 1967 with one of his closest advisors and best friends, Stan Levison. And we have the conversation transcribed because the FBI was wiretapping their phones. And, and um, we haven't talked about that, but the surveillance against King was relentless. Um, but here he is with one of his closest advisors, closest friends, after what I consider King's greatest speech at uh, Riverside Church in New York City on April 4th, 1967, in which he basically summarizes his, his, his biggest religious beliefs and his, his belief that um, he has to speak out, not just against racism, but against militarism and materialism. He calls America the greatest purveyor of violence on earth. And his best friend, one of his best friends, says to him, I think that speech was a terrible mistake. It didn't sound like you. It's cost us all kinds of support among our, our patrons. It's going to hurt your relationship with the president of the United States. I just don't think it was wise. And King, you can almost sense the, the tears, you know, the, the heartbreak. He says, you know, it may have been politically unwise, but it was not morally unwise. And this is who I am. Haven't you been paying attention to what I believe, to what I've been saying all these years? It's not about what's going to get me the most points politically or what's going to make me the strongest in my negotiations with the White House. It's about what I think is the right thing to do. And for him to be guided by that at that point in his career, to still be guided by what he thinks is the right thing to do, is just extraordinary. Hmm. Yeah, part of my instinct is just to sit with that because I think, I think what I took away most from the book, I mean, beyond just the, the personal sort of uh, almost uh, sense of relatability to this idea of just being thrust into, and a lot of people can relate to this, just being thrust into something that you never felt you were going to do, but then you feel deeply called to. But the big thing that I took away from this is just, he, he was just doing his best and he, and he deeply, it seemed believed in, in, in his ideas, but was willing to change his ideas and feel challenged and feel critique. And 
it's just, you know, at the end of the day, if we strip away all the complexity of everything, John, like that we're just all humans. And, and I, and I wish, I wish we could build and, and live in a world in which people's immediate rush wasn't to critique, jump, you know, tweet, act. It was, it, it but, but to give people the chance to just be better. I, I just wish, I, I don't understand why, I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Do you get saying. it? No. Um, just give people well, a King chance to be better. Um, because King um, knew he was deeply flawed. He, knew, he, he was suffering from anxiety. He was hospitalized for exhaustion. Um, Jesse Jackson called it clinical depression. Um, he was having affairs with women other than his wife. He knew he was not perfect. But as you said, he was just trying. He was just trying to do his best. And he kept going. When he could have stopped, he could have said, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. I'm going to let someone else do this. Um, someone else can take the heat for a while. But he, 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 he knew, you know, he, he believed it was important to keep going. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jonathan. Normally we don't do reruns, but I thought today it's Dr. King. We're honoring his legacy. It's Martin Luther King Day. And what better to do than to have the author of Dr. King's most recent biography, King of Life, actually, and have that conversation with him. And I hope you enjoyed and understood and learned something new. And importantly, if you had critiques, those are always welcome because the hopeful majority, it's all about being open-minded, curious. And that's the nature of what we're trying to build. Every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, leave a like, subscribe on YouTube, review on Apple, Spotify. All of that is necessary, useful, because we're building this hopeful majority together. I'll see you next week on another really interesting conversation because that one, we explore the dynamics of what's going to happen this year with the presidential election. I'll see you next week. 